0: So this article can help articulate some of the long-term concerns I have with the various smart contract blockchains, even at times when I am bullish on price from a tactical sense, and in the context of the fact that I am interested in the concept of smart contracts generally. Welcome to Ethereum Audible, Ethereum In-Depth, where we read the best in Web3 Ethereum ecosystem. And today we are going bearish, bearish on Ethereum with Lynn Alden and her amazing piece, Proof of Stake and Stablecoins, a Blockchain Centralization Dilemma. I know it's kind of heretical to read something that's bearish on Ethereum on a podcast called Ethereum Audible, but I love Lynn Alden's writing. I think she offers a great perspective and objectivity that we just have to read as part of the ethereum ecosystem i think ethereum bulls and bears need to take the time do their homework read the research and form their own opinions and that is why we are going to be diving into this very long article we're going to be breaking it up into two parts The first part is going to deal with proof-of-work and proof-of-stake. The second part is going to dive into the blockchain centralization dilemma based on stablecoins. And we're just going to have a blast because this is just a great piece of work. And while I don't agree with everything and I will voice my differences of opinions at the end, well, it's just a great piece of work. But as always, before we dive in, I want to thank the sponsor that makes these episodes and read-throughs possible. This episode is brought to you by Alp Audio. Want to learn on the go but need more depth than a podcast? Alp is the app for you. It's an audio education app that brings great in-depth courses that are as fun as podcasts but as educational as a degree. Each lesson comes with summaries, additional resources, flashcards, and more. You can even find Ethereum Audible on Alp with all of those additional resources. If you want to check it out, head over to get.alpaudio.com, and that's A-L-P-E, Alp, A-L-P-E. Let's go. Proof of Stake and Stablecoins, a Blockchain Centralization Dilemma, by Lim Alden, originally published November 2021. I've been asked a number of times for an update for my views on Ethereum since my January 2021 article on the topic, which received over a quarter million reads. In that prior article, I described Ethereum, explained areas where I was bullish, but also expressed my fundamental concerns with it. The overall tenor of the article was somewhat critical of Ethereum, which is why it received so much attention. In that article, I was also quite bullish on the proliferation on stablecoins in the coming years. I don't mean to pitch my content here, But for context, members of my premium service already know my updated views on Ethereum, because I've been providing updates on Ethereum pretty much every month since that initial article. The summary of those many reports was that I frequently described problems with the Ethereum blockchain including DeFi hacks, centralization issues, unintended chain splits, NFT speculation, and so forth, but that I've been rather tactically bullish in terms of price action or the intermediate term, once I initiated regular coverage in January. Here are some brief excerpts, quote, for those that are watching it, a firm Ethereum price break over $1,400 should be pretty bullish for the protocol in the intermediate term, since it clears out overhead resistance, end quote, that's from January 31st of 2021, quote, statistically speaking, Ethereum and other alts could very well outperform Bitcoin to the upside, during the bull period of the cycle, as they often do, but I'd be worried about a lot of digital assets, especially outside Bitcoin itself, on a down leg of the cycle in maybe 2022 or 2023, from February 14th, 2021. The amount of ETH on exchanges has been in a downtrend since August 2020, similar to what's happening with BTC. All else being equal, that's bullish. April 14th, 2021 While I have concerns about Ethereum's long-term design and shift towards Ethereum 2.0, the very ability to change its monetary policy shows how impermanent the monetary policy is. It's hard to be bearish on price action in the intermediate term. EIP-1559, which I wrote about favorably in my otherwise somewhat critical public piece on Ethereum back in January, should be pretty bullish, for price when it goes into effect and with Ethereum 2.0 staking in effect since December 2020, ETH tokens continue to leave exchanges and get locked up. Implementing EIP-1559 while delaying the shift towards Ethereum 2.0, which is basically the plan at the moment, is actually kind of a perfect storm for price, in a positive way for the year ahead. So while I have higher conviction on BTC than ETH with, say, a 5-year view, the specific dynamics holding up ETH prices are pretty strong for the back half of this year. It would need to break above 2900 to get interesting again, though. Right now, it's in a sideways consolidation from June 6, 2021. Overall, Ethereum still remains under a persistent supply squeeze at the moment, one-way staking until Ethereum 2.0 is launched, with about 7.4 million locked up ETH at the moment. So I remain somewhat tactically bullish on price despite being long-term cautious about some of the technical fundamentals, use cases, competitors, etc. September 5th, 2021. I remain tactically bullish on Ether in terms of price action, despite some misgivings about the long-term risks and use cases. My tactical bullishness is in part based on the Ethereum 2.0 lockup contract that continues to soak up a ton of Ether, up to over 8 million now, which can't come out. And as a consequence of that, either continues to quickly get drawn down from exchanges, even a bit faster than bitcoins are getting drawn down from exchanges. It's a well-engineered supply squeeze. October 31st, 2021. And it seems my view on stablecoins from the original January 2021 article was accurate, since they increased from $33 billion at the time of writing to $140 billion in capitalization in under a year. Quote, Stablecoins are particularly important, in my view. I'm bullish on the amount of money locked up in stablecoins. It's a space to watch for both good developments and bad developments. The US Office of the Comptroller of the Currency now officially permits US banks to use stablecoins. They're a much more liquid form of fiat currency, and can have various implications for central bank digital currencies and the existing global monetary system. January seventeenth, 2021 There has been a bit more institutional interest in Ethereum, as well as institutional interest in follow-up chains like Solana, than I expected from January. So that's something I've been monitoring. There is still a lot of regulatory uncertainty around these types of tokens. Unlike Bitcoin, they generally seem to meet the definition of being financial securities. For this follow-up public article, I figured it's time to delve into three related concepts that are more broad than just Ethereum. The first is about the trade-offs of -of proof-of-stake as a consensus mechanism in general, the second is the stablecoin centralization problem, and the third is the spectrum of centralization that various smart contracts chains use to compete with each other on fees. All three of these relate together because they affect how truly decentralized a proof-of-stake smart contract blockchain can be compared to the Bitcoin network and how they can perform relative to each other in hostile or non-hostile regulatory environments. So this article can help articulate some of the long-term concerns I have with the various smart contract blockchains, even at times when I am bullish on price from a tactical sense, and in the context of the fact that I am interested in the concept of smart contracts generally. I want to reiterate that I try to be as objective as possible when analyzing blockchains, It's no secret at this point that I like the Bitcoin protocol quite a bit, but that's because it's the one I'm able to find the fewest faults with on a risk-adjusted basis. I analyze multiple asset classes from stocks to bonds to commodities to digital assets, and often compare individual assets within those asset classes. So when I analyze blockchains, I approach it the same way. And importantly, I separate technical price action from fundamental soundness because they can be very different things for periods of time. This article touches on blockchains like Ethereum and Solana, but more broadly is about the centralization problems of -of proof-of-stake blockchains and custodial stablecoins in general, as the topics discussed here can apply to many blockchains outside of Bitcoin. We'll be covering proof-of-stake versus proof-of-work, the stablecoin centralization problem, how important is decentralization, and protocol, or operating system. Proof of Stake versus Proof of Work Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin protocol comes to a consensus on valid transaction using a method known as proof of work. Satoshi Nakamoto referenced Adam Beck for his prior development of proof of work as one of eight references in the Bitcoin white paper. Since then, a number of people have proposed that other methods of consensus, such as proof of stake, are more efficient. Often, the advantages of these proposals are described with insufficient acknowledgement of the trade-offs that they make compared to proof-of-work. This section explores that concept. Proof-of-work 101 The Bitcoin network is programmed to create a new block on average every 10 minutes, and add that block to the blockchain, which consists of hundreds of thousands of blocks since inception in 2009. A new block is produced by a Bitcoin miner, i.e. a specialized computer, contributing processing power, and thus electricity, to solve a cryptographic puzzle that the previous block created, at which point the miner can package thousands of Bitcoin transactions currently in the queue into that block. That's how transactions get settled. The network is programmed to target average block times of 10 minutes, meaning on average every 10 minutes a block of thousands of transactions is added to the blockchain. Processors use random guesses to solve the puzzle left by the prior block, but the law of large numbers is such that the more Bitcoin mining equipment you have, the more blocks you find over a sufficiently long period of time. If miners drop off the network and new blocks on average start taking longer than 10 minutes to produce, The network is automatically programmed to make the puzzle easier by a quantified amount so that blocks can go back to an every 10-minute average schedule. Likewise, if a lot of miners join the network and blocks get added to the blockchain faster than every 10 minutes on average, the network will make the puzzle harder. This is known as the difficulty adjustment, which occurs automatically every two weeks and is one of the key programming challenges that Satoshi Nakamoto solved to make the network work Properly, So at any given time, there are millions of Bitcoin mining machines around the world looking to solve the puzzle and create the next block, and there's a natural feedback mechanism to ensure that blocks are created on average every 10 minutes, regardless of how many or few miners work on the network. In the first half of 2021, China, by far the largest country in terms of miner concentration at the time, banned crypto mining, and approximately half the global Bitcoin network went offline and started moving elsewhere. Bitcoin's payment network briefly briefly slowed down, but otherwise kept working with 100% uptime. The difficulty adjustment then kicked in, and brought the network back up to its target speed. Imagine if Amazon or Microsoft were told with one week's notice that they had to move half of their server capacity internationally they would likely experience uptime issues for their services for the rest of the year, at least, as they moved and rebuilt half of their infrastructure. The Bitcoin network instead continued to operate with 100% uptime. If a miner creates an invalid block, meaning one that doesn't conform to the shared rules of the existing node network, the network discards it. If two miners produce a valid block at around the same time, the winner will be decided by which one gets found by the rest of the network first and has another valid block produced and added onto it, becoming the longer, and thus official, blockchain. If those second blocks are also close, then it will come down to who wins the third valid block, or fourth valid block. Eventually, a longer chain wins, as a greater share of the network is finding it and building on top of it. This process is known as proof of work. Millions of machines are using electricity to apply processing power, to guess the answer to cryptographic puzzles left by the most recent block. This may seem like a waste of energy, but it's what keeps the system decentralized. Work is the arbiter of truth, in this case. There is no central authority that decides what constitutes a valid block or a valid set of transactions. The longest blockchain is verifiable at any given time, and is recognized as truth by the rest of the network based on code. The longest blockchain is the one with the most work put into it, and that also meets the consensus criteria that the node networks check. That blockchain becomes the global consensus. The more energy that Bitcoin's network uses, the more secure that its latest transactions are against most types of attacks. Many of the tiny non-Bitcoin blockchains have been victims of 51% attacks, where a single entity temporarily or permanently, gains control of over 51% of the processing power on the network and uses that majority of the processing power to reorganize blocks and perform double-spend transactions, which is essentially theft. This chart, for example, shows Bitcoin's network processing power compared to the processing power of some of its hard-forked copycats. And the chart shows the Bitcoin hash rate, which is orders and orders of magnitude bigger than Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin SV. Both of those other blockchains only have 1% or less of the Bitcoin network's total processing power and have been hit by malicious block reorgs. In fact, if just 1% of Bitcoin miners decided to do a 51% attack on either of those two hard forks, they can. The same is not true for the other direction since it is the Bitcoin network that has a far larger network of miners and energy usage than them by two orders of magnitude. That shows the importance of network effects in the blockchain industry, and why Bitcoin's energy usage has kept it uniquely secure. When someone asks, can't you just copy Bitcoin? That's why the answer is no. You can replicate the open source code, but you can't replicate the fact that millions of ASIC miners are securing the Bitcoin network and not your copycat network. You can't replicate the fact that tens of thousands of full nodes are ensuring consensus. And you can't replicate the fact that thousands of developers are working on making the Bitcoin network better every day, rather than working on your copycat network. And Bitcoin's second layer, Lightning, has a lot of open channels and liquidity that can't be easily replicated either. It took years to build trying to copy Bitcoin would be like if I copied the content from Wikipedia and hosted it on my website. Technically, it could be done, but it wouldn't do much. It wouldn't gain the real Wikipedia's traffic because it wouldn't have the hundreds of millions of links pointing to it from other websites. And it wouldn't be updated like the real Wikipedia, because there's no way I could convince the majority of those volunteer editors to come work on my version instead. Unless I could somehow succeed in the Herculean task of convincing the majority of the network. To move over to my version, it would always just be a shadow of the real one with a tiny fraction of the value. The same is true if I made a poor mimic of Twitter. I could make it look like Twitter, but it wouldn't really be Twitter, full of users and developers. Proof of Stake 101. Okay, so as we discussed, Proof of Work is a system where miners compete with electricity and processing power to build the longest blockchain which becomes the accepted blockchain. The digital blockchain via proof-of-work is thus connected to real-world natural resources. The Bitcoin network has operated via proof-of-work since inception in 2009, and with no plans to change that. The Ethereum network has also operated via proof-of-work since its inception in 2015, but it has been planning to change to a proof-of-stake system for several years. Many newer smart contract blockchains launched after Ethereum have incorporated proof of stake consensus from the start, which puts them ahead of Ethereum in that regard, but without Ethereum's substantial network effect. So let's dive into how proof of stake works. Proof of stake is a system where holders of the cryptocurrency lock up or stake their coins and use them to vote on the valid blockchain, and get rewarded with more coins for successfully creating new blocks. Instead of committing electricity and processing power to create new blocks on the blockchain, they're committing their stake of coins to do so. Proof-of-work is simple, because there is no need to punish bad miners that try to validate the wrong chain or make invalid blocks that don't fit the rules of the node network. Their punishment is simply that they spent electricity on blocks that weren't valid or weren't included in the longest eventual chain, and thus lost money. They self-inflict their own wound, And thus it rarely happens on purpose. There is a tangible connection between the blockchain and real-world resources. Proof of stake is more complex, because there is no connection to real-world resources, and the system needs a way to punish stakers that improperly vote on the wrong chain. In addition, they need a way to make sure stakers aren't voting on all possible chains, which can't be done with proof of work because it takes real-world resources for each one. So proof of stake is a much more complex system that will try to take away stakers' coins if they vote improperly, and has ways of checking to see if they are voting on multiple chains. Ben Edgington, a developer for Ethereum and someone who is in favor of Ethereum's upcoming shift towards proof-of-stake, went on the Compass Mining podcast and elegantly explained the long-term challenges that Ethereum has faced as it undergoes its multi-year and long-delayed shift from proof-of-work towards proof-of-stake. Quote, the reason it has taken a while, you know, we've relied on proof of work in Ethereum for five plus years, is that proof of stake is complicated. Proof of work is fundamentally very simple, is easy to analyze, is easy to implement and deploy, and proof of stake has a lot of moving parts. You can code up a proof of work algorithm in a hundred lines of code or so. Our current clients are 100,000 lines or so for proof of stake. And I think the theoretical foundation for, for, for proof of stake have taken time to mature. It's not obvious how to make it robust. There are attacks like long range attacks and things that just don't exist in proof of work that we've had to think through and come up with solutions to, so that's just taken time. So we've relied on the tried and tested proof of work algorithm, and it served Ethereum well. End quote. The host in that podcast discussed how early proponents of the Bitcoin network were initially interested in proof of stake, but determined it had too many attack vectors. He then asked Ben how Ethereum and the proof-of-stake model defends against those attack vectors. Ben thinks it is robust and is in favor of it, and described proof-of-stake's workarounds as follows, The initial difficult one to solve was what we call equivocation, which means that it is basically costless to produce blocks. So if I'm a proposer of a block, I can propose two competing blocks, or three, or a hundred, and broadcast them to the network that has no real way to distinguish between those blocks. That can be extremely disruptive and attack the chain, certainly split the chain. And so we deal with this through a mechanism we call slashing. And so for a proposer to propose conflicting blocks, that is a slashable offense. The network can detect that. Another proposer can come along and say, here are two blocks that were proposed by the same validator at the same time, their signature is on it, so that can't be faked. So here's a proof that they acted incorrectly and then part of their stake is taken away from them, and they are rejected from the network at that point. So you only get one chance. In proof of work, if your 51% attack fails, you can just crank it up again and do it again and again. In proof of stake, you get one chance. You're slashed, you're out of the network, and your ETH is locked up for a while. So it's kind of self-healing in that respect. So that was a major theoretical breakthrough that kind of made people think, actually, we kind of can do this. There are fixes to common attacks. Another one is called a long-range attack. And this is kind of subtle, but the idea is that once you've exited the network as a validator, you can then go back in time effectively. So I exit the network, and I go back a month in time and produce, if I have enough validator keys, as many historical blocks as I wish. I can write a different history for the chain effectively, which conflicts with its current history, and I've exited so I can't be slashed anymore. So that's a long-range attack. We have an analysis of this, and an understanding of this, which Bitcoiners will hate, but we call it weak subjectivity. It's the idea that anybody who is continually online is always safe, because they are monitoring the chain, and they always know what the correct chain is. If you sync from scratch, you know you sync from Genesis. There is a danger that you follow an attacker chain. So you need a checkpoint which guarantees that you are on the right chain, which you need to get from someone who has been online for the entire period or somebody who is guaranteed to be on the right chain. Now, that is called weak subjectivity. There are rules about how frequently these checkpoints need to be produced, how we can rely on them, and we are building somewhat trustless mechanisms for getting hold of these checkpoints. It is, I understand, a deep clash with Bitcoin ideology in that sense, that anybody in a vacuum should be able to sync up from Genesis and know they are on the right chain without trusting anybody in any way, shape, or form. We are not doing that. That seems to be very difficult with proof of stake. That's a compromise we've made, but we believe in practice this is completely workable and will not lead to any practical attacks of any sort. End quote. Besides this larger amount of complexity, trust, and attack surfaces, I would argue that a main issue with proof of stake is that it can be prone to centralization. With a proof of stake system, the more coins you have, the more voting power you have. And those with the coins are also the ones earning the new coins from staking. Since they don't need to expend resources to stake, they can simply increase their overall staking amount as they earn ongoing coins from staking rewards, and exponentially grow their influence on the network over time, forever. Network dominance tends to lead to more network dominance. In other words. It would be like a political system, where you get a vote for every $100 you have, and then also get paid a dollar by the government for casting each vote. Mary, the high school science teacher with $20,000 in net worth, gets 200 votes, and earns $200 from the government for voting. Jeff Bezos, with $200 billion in net worth, gets 2 billion votes, and earns $2 billion from the government for voting. He's a more valuable citizen than Mary, by a factor of a million, and also gets paid more by the government for already being wealthy. That's not a system many folks would like to live in. Eventually, it would likely consolidate into an oligopoly if it wasn't already, with a handful of multi-billionaires controlling most of the votes and ruling everything. If it gets too centralized, that kind of defeats the purpose of a decentralized blockchain. Instead, that proof-of-stake system mainly works well for stakes in centralized private property, like corporations. In a corporation, each share is worth a vote for proposals and board seats, since the owners decide what the company will do in proportion to their ownership. These are voluntary organizations. Shareholders, customers, and employees can go to a different corporation if they don't like the rulers. That's different than a national election, which is supposed to be a decentralized platform, and it's different than money or legal tender as well. So I don't consider the proof-of-stake model bad for other cryptocurrencies to use in terms of experimentation if they are more like a corporation. In fact, proof-of-stake can increase the cost of attacking the protocol since an attack or group of attackers would need to acquire a lot of the coins unless they find and exploit a bug due to the greater attack surface or somehow steal the coins. There are certain DeFi projects or platforms, for example, that can operate like a company and use proof-of-stake to be efficient and costly to attack if all goes well. They'll be prone to centralization, but if they're voluntary services competing with other proof-of-stake services, that can be okay. If their service isn't good, people can go elsewhere. In general, we have no problems with companies being centralized because they're companies. Instead, proof-of-stake mainly seems less suitable for a decentralized and censorship-resistant global monetary asset especially when considered along with the issues that I'll describe in the second half of this article about stablecoins. Proof of stake is inherently equity-like rather than money-like compared to proof of work. Adam Beck described this succinctly a while ago, Quote, you see that with other commodity money, like physical gold, it's a system that works because money has a cost. I think money that doesn't have a cost ultimately ends up being political in nature so people closer to the money, the so-called Cantillon effect, are going to be advantaged. End quote. How Bitcoin Survived Buying Not Being Proof-of-Stake In a proof-of-work system, and particularly the Bitcoin network with its purposely small nodes, power is distributed between miners, developers, and individual nodes. Your ability to be a miner is based on your ability to put forth capital and find low-cost electricity. Rather than the entrenched miners having an advantage and increasing their advantage over time, as is inherently the case with proof-of-stake systems, newer miners actually have a technical advantage over existing miners in some ways, because they buy the newer machines with more processing power per watt, thanks to Moore's Law, with no existing sunk cost. Mining businesses old and new are all constantly refreshing themselves with capital expenditures, making use of new cheap or stranded energy resources. Management quality and experience is critical, and economies of scale only get you so far. Plus, the Bitcoin's network designers went to great lengths to make it easy and cheap to run a full node, unlike almost any other cryptocurrency, which allows any user to audit the entire blockchain and reject the blocks that don't conform with the rules of the node network. In the Bitcoin network, the real power rests with the nodes, rather than the miners. If miners try to collude and mine blocks that are invalid, the node network simply rejects those blocks. We can think of this as being similar to the US Constitution that set up three branches of government to limit each other. The executive branch, legislative branch, and judicial branch have various ways To overrule each other in certain contexts, and have staggered term limits, which by design makes the political system resistant to changing too quickly and thus devolving into either authoritarianism on one hand or mob rule on the other. Similarly, the Bitcoin network has the node network, the miners, and the developers, with the node network being the final arbiter of consensus, but relying on miners to order transactions and developers to create updates that both the miners and no network accept as being improvements. The natural state of the network is to resist change, especially changes to the foundational design of the system. So it requires overwhelming consensus to change something, and those changes are backwards compatible soft forks that nodes can choose to opt into or not while still being compatible with the protocol. Many other blockchains that have come into existence since the Bitcoin network make multiple trade-offs, including making the nodes require immense processing power, bandwidth, and storage, so that only industrial-scale entities can run them, which centralizes the network into a handful of major providers who can audit the blockchain and ensure consensus. Bitcoin's proof-of-work and small block design keeps a lot of power with the individual user, Anyone running a full node can audit the entire blockchain, verify their individual transactions, and participate in the network effect that ensures consensus. I recommend that folks interested in Bitcoin and the broader cryptocurrency space read The Block Size War, which is a 2021 book that chronicles the history of the Bitcoin network as different factions struggled with each other to shape the design of the protocol and to see who had the power. Developers corporate miners, exchanges, or individual users and nodes. It was a real-world test of Bitcoin's level of decentralization. It was a constitutional crisis for the Bitcoin network, in other words, and it passed the test. Ever since the network's early history, there was a growing divide between people who wanted to increase the block size and people who wanted to keep it small. Increasing the block size allows the network to process more transactions per unit of time, not taking into account Layer 2 solutions and sidechain solutions, Lightning and Liquid, which didn't exist yet. However, increasing the block size also increases the bandwidth and data storage required to run a full node, and thus puts it out of the reach of the everyday user on a laptop or Raspberry Pi. Even Satoshi Nakamoto himself played a dual role in this debate. He's the one that personally added the block size limit after the network was already running, but also discussed how it could potentially be increased over time as global bandwidth improves. If users can neither mine nor operate a full node themselves, they have to trust large-scale network providers, and Bitcoin could cease to be a trustless decentralized system. It would permanently weaken the consensus function of the network, in other words. After the seeds of this disagreement were laid from the protocol's inception and with Satoshi Nakamoto long gone, It was from 2015 through 2017 that the block size war went into full conflict. At one point in 2017, over 80% of miner processing power, the biggest maker of Bitcoin mining equipment, prior lead developers of Bitcoin, and a large number of major custodians and exchanges including Coinbase and Grayscale were in favor of increasing the block size with an upgrade called SegWit2x, not to be confused with the normal SegWit update. That's an overwhelming amount of support among the corporate-level players in the industry. Or as they described themselves in their New York agreement, they were a critical mass of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And yet, they failed. The existing developers, and most importantly, the majority of the individual node operators, were not on board with the plan. And so, along with multiple other reasons, it was aborted. Quote, Segwit2x was a failed contentious hard fork attempt outlined in the New York agreement that it intended to double the block size limit. The hard fork has been denounced as an attempt made by CEOs and owners of large Bitcoin businesses to introduce changes to the currency's protocol and development cycle with ulterior motives. Though over 80% of miners signaled intention for the Segwit2x and the New York agreement, it failed to gain any consensus among the community and core developers. End quote. If Bitcoin had been proof of stake, And without the real power in the Bitcoin network being among the individual node operators, with those nodes specifically being designed so that anyone can run them, those big corporate players might have been successful at reshaping the Bitcoin network. That could have put running a full node out of reach of normal users and thus partially centralized the protocol. More realistically, it may not have been that small block size increases that did it, but it could have set the stage for a series of much larger block size increases down the road. If Bitcoin were built on a proof-of-stake model, where the more coins you have, the more votes you have on how the network functions, the large exchanges and custodians could have used the millions of coins they held on behalf of clients to vote in their own favor. This is similar to how Vanguard and BlackRock hold trillions of dollars of indexed equity access for their users, and maintain the voting rights on those assets. Some folks on the big block side also forked their own blockchains out of Bitcoin throughout this war, creating large block versions of Bitcoin, including Bitcoin XT, Bitcoin Classic, Bitcoin Unlimited, Bitcoin Cash, and Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. All of those have fallen significantly versus Bitcoin in terms of market capitalization and hash rate as they have been rejected by the market. Some of these versions are now dead, and others have been subject to major 51% attacks. Proof of work and small full nodes together are the main way currently known to keep a blockchain sufficiently decentralized on the base layer, and with the highest level of security, including the most hardened attack surface. If Bitcoin ever upgrades to a different system, it would only be with overwhelming consensus among users. Proof of stake technical challenges. Ethereum has been running into more acute scaling problems than Bitcoin, which has opened the door to a number of more centralized, and thus in some ways more efficient, competing smart contract blockchains. And among these new proof of stake competitors, there are multiple examples of their systems running into technical problems. One of the highest profile issues involved the Solana blockchain going down for 17 hours, requiring a manual coordinated restart by validators. Solana is a popular VC-backed smart contract blockchain that tries to be a lot more scalable than Ethereum by implementing a combination of of proof-of-stake with proof-of-history to achieve significant throughput. What are its trade-offs? Well, there are a number of them. Solana's higher throughput compared to Ethereum does not come with a free lunch. First of all, to run a Solana validator, you need a computer with 12 CPU cores, 120 GB of RAM, and 300 megabit per second upload speed, 1 gigabit per second is recommended. That setup, especially the upload speed part, basically means you need to be at a data center operator to run a Solana validator. Unlike Bitcoin, you can't use a laptop at home to validate the entire blockchain. Solana is not auditable to you, in other words. Secondly, even those data center-level validators have to rely on archivers to if they want to go back to the full history of the blockchain. Because over time, the amount of stored information becomes utterly massive. Bitcoin does not have this problem. After 13 years of operation, the entire Bitcoin blockchain can be stored on a common computer drive. In another 13 years, Bitcoin will still be storable on a common computer drive. Solana's archival history after a decade or two would be an astounding amount of data that again makes it non-auditable to you. Thirdly, Solana uses manual slashing. In other words, it's a blockchain that requires human decisions to determine consensus if there are significant attacks on the network. Quote, slashing is a hard problem, and it becomes harder when the goal of the network is to have the lowest possible latency. The trade-offs are especially apparent when optimizing for latency. For example, ideally validators should cast and propagate their votes before the memory has been synced to disk which means that the risk of local state corruption is much higher. Fundamentally, our goal for slashing is to slash 100% in cases where the node is maliciously trying to violate safety rules and 0% during routine operation. How we aim to achieve that is to first implement slashing proofs without any automatic slashing whatsoever. Right now, for regular consensus, after a safety violation, the network will halt. We can analyze the data and figure out who is responsible and propose that the stake should be slashed after restart. A similar approach will be used with optimistic conf. An optimistic conf safety violation is easily observable, but under normal circumstances, an optimistic confirmation safety violation may not halt the network. Once the violation has been observed, the validators will freeze the affected stake in the next epoch and will decide on the next upgrade if the violation requires slashing. In the long term, Transactions should be able to recover a portion of the slashing collateral if the optimistic safety violation is proven. In that scenario, each block is effectively insured by the network, end quote. That's from optimistic confirmation and slashing in the Solana documentation. So Solana is not really even an automated blockchain. It's a step back from both proof-of-work Bitcoin and proof-of-work Ethereum in terms of automation, in exchange for more throughput and low fees. The consensus mechanism is more manual, human, and political. And before the Solana Bulls get mad at me, I'll point out that I'm not biased against Solana. Smart contract platforms have a natural tendency to move towards greater and greater centralization, because the more centralized they are, the more efficient they are. And users want efficiency, for example, low fees and fast confirmations. Back in early September 2021, when Solana was at a $40 billion market capitalization, and Cardano was at a 90 billion market capitalization, I suggested an eventual flippening in my research service, which was two months before it happened in early November of 2021. Quote, I think Solana, currently the seventh largest crypto by market cap, has a decent shot of catching up with Cardano, currently the third largest, in terms of market capitalization. Although I don't invest in either of them, the main draw for Solana right now is that they are building out semi decentralized exchanges and other applications and their fees are much lower than Ethereum, September 5th, and maintained this view even after Solana broke for 17 hours. Meanwhile, Ethereum's competitor Solana ran into many more severe issues. The entire blockchain went down for nearly a day on September 14th due to an overload in transactions. Validators had to coordinate and restart it. It's funny timing, because back in my September 5th report, I I discussed how centralized Solana is, and this type of problem is an example of that. I still think Solana has a reasonable shot of catching up with Cardano's market capitalization, end quote. Basically, my thesis with Solana was that most users of smart contract platforms care more about low fees than high levels of decentralization, at least in a non-hostile regulatory environment. I had already been observing this with Tether stablecoins shifting from Ethereum to Tron when the fees became high on Ethereum. As a result, smart contract platforms that have higher throughput and a critical mass of support each have a decent shot of taking market share. The field at this time keeps diluting itself with cheaper and more centralized networks. However, Ethereum also goes partially down from time to time with unintended chain splits, and it's possible that if it changes over to proof of stake, it could face similar, more severe issues to what Solana faces. In contrast, Bitcoin has had literal 100% uptime since spring 2013, and when it had an issue back then, it was worth less than $1 billion in market capitalization, and thus was truly in the experimental stage. An October 2021 paper from Stanford, and financially supported by the Ethereum Foundation to their credit, called Three Attacks on Proof-of-Stake Ethereum, outlined ways to attack the system once Ethereum switches over to proof-of-stake. I'll let the PhDs of computer science determine which attack paths are valid and which are defendable with upgrades once the attack is known, rather than go into depth on that paper. I suggest reading it. Ethereum developers have delayed Ethereum's transition to proof-of-stake for years. Their initial plan to switch to proof-of-stake was back in 2016, and we were about to enter 2022, acknowledging that it's a much more complex system than proof-of-work. Solana developers likewise acknowledge how hard slashing a necessary component of of proof-of-stake is to implement, and of manual slashing which very much centralizes the system, along with the lack of true auditability by most participants. Hugo Nguyen has a series of articles critiquing proof-of-stake in terms of first principles. The main theme is that by not including unforgeable costliness as part of their designs, Proof-of-stake systems are inherently more circular in nature, and thus rely more on some degree of constant trust, have less ability to recover from chain splits without manual intervention, and have limited ability to secure the historical blockchain. An excerpt, quote, Second, and much more importantly, once the proof-of-work node software has been downloaded, it's reasonably safe for the proof-of-work node operator to turn off the node for an arbitrary amount of time. Past the bootstrapping stage, proof-of-work is highly permissionless. Nodes can come and go whenever they like. The only exception to this is in the event of hard forks, which require the node operators to repeat the bootstrapping process, another reason hard forks should be used very judiciously and avoided if possible. In contrast, a proof-of-stake node operator, even with the correct software downloaded, will regularly need to reach out to trusted third parties to ensure he stays on the canonical chain, the fear of losing contact with the main network and getting tricked onto the wrong chain will continue for eternity, possibly long after the trusted third parties cease to exist. This marks a significant degradation in security. End quote. A lot of people offhandedly propose proof of stake as being superior or better technology than proof of work and praise higher throughput systems without realizing these technical issues at all. Many of the things they think are bugs to be eliminated from the system, like the fact that a proof-of-work system has a real-world resource cost, are actually features that make it as secure as possible. And then they are surprised that many people don't view tokens of -of proof-of-stake protocols and higher throughput systems as being secure enough to be considered global money, or pristine collateral, in the same way that bitcoins are. Instead, these types of protocols are rather centralized experimental platforms for smart contracts, which can only be speculated upon like tech growth stocks, but ideally only by those who fully appreciate the risks. Okay, that is the end of part one of Lynn Alden's take on proof of stake. In part two, we'll start with the stablecoin centralization problem, and I'm going to break them into two because we're already going on 45 minutes and we're only halfway through. But I wanted to offer some thoughts on this debate between proof of stake and proof of work. And first off, just a huge shout out to Lynn Alden and her writing. I love the thoroughness. I love the fact that this is just going on and on for over an hour of high-quality reading and sources and primary research. And I just love the objectivity. I think it's something that's really needed in our tribal crypto world. So just a huge shout-out to that. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to read a quote-unquote bearish take on Ethereum on Ethereum Audible, because I think we need more of that cleared-eyed objectivity when we approach blockchains. So here are some thoughts of mine on this topic. There are different use cases in the crypto Web3 world, and they should be served by different consensus protocols. If you're building something that's low value, it doesn't have to be a canonical money, you know, store value for decades, then proof of work might not be necessary and proof of stake can work just as well. It's really a question of what the blockchain is serving. Now, in terms of Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think That's something that starts off this debate is that there are just indeed very different worldviews between these two communities. The Bitcoin community is that Bitcoin should never be touched, that its strength is that no one can change the code, code is law, code is God, immutable, unchangeable, will only ever be 21 million, and any change is almost for the worse. On the other hand, Ethereum is much more community driven. And it's changing now with a take that's on its way towards calcification. And so the consensus of the community matters a lot because it's a live protocol. And those two different starting points are vastly, vastly different. And that's where we see, or at least I see, a lot of the challenges in Bitcoin, Ethereum bull bear debates. There is just this disconnect in terms of worldview around how much a community should be involved in governance. Now, both, though, have the same core principles around decentralization, which is interesting because among the many, many different chains, core Ethereum users, holders are just as much about decentralization as Bitcoiners are. That's why they haven't moved to Solana or Tron or Binance, Smart Chain, or whatever it is, it's that individuals really can run a node and verify, and that there is no assumption of trust about the major validators, and that users have control. And while Ethereum isn't quite there yet today, it's definitely on the roadmap, and that those core principles are always front and center in all of the articles and takes that I read and all of the discussions that I listen to. So I think those two points are important to keep in mind, that while there are differences of opinion on the role of community and, quote unquote, politics, the core principles of decentralization, auditability, running your own node, not your crees, not your crypto, are core principles of both communities. Now we can get into the proof of stake, proof of work debate a little bit more. And first off, I will just start with why proof of stake? I did a read-through of Vitalik's Y Proof-of-Stake from November of 2020, and that's actually the first read-through I did for Ethereum Audible. I highly recommend you dive into that. It's pretty short and very concise and highlights these three key benefits that Proof-of-Stake has over Proof-of-Work um, on defensibility and on decentralization. Now, I know Lynn Alden mentioned centralization where the rich get richer, and yes, that is a valid risk, but... I think the jury is out because proof of work also has strong risk factors for centralization. We've seen vertical integration happen before in tech and that definitely leads to centralization and that could definitely happen in the mining world. Whether it's someone coming up with ASICs that are vastly better and vertically integrating to that or just locking in some low cost energy, whatever it is, because it's in the real world, because doing things in the physical world are hard to do, any real advantage would be insurmountable, or it would be very difficult to overcome. And that's a factor that just exists in the physical world that doesn't exist in the virtual world of proof of stake, where if you had a rich player like Jeff Bezos, well, Elon Musk could come and play, and Mark Zuckerberg could come and play, and Jack Ma would come and play, and they would even each other out because all have capital from elsewhere. And that makes the playing field much more flat and accessible to many different people because it's easy to access and because it's not linked to the physical world. So it's not clear cut. And the truth is, it's always a trade-off on decentralization and security. These terms aren't absolute. They're on a spectrum. The question being, are they decentralized enough? Are they secure enough to support the goals of the ecosystem that's building on them. Whether it's being sound money, untouchable money, store value, or a platform for smart contracts with credible neutrality that no one can stop. The one thing that it is safe to assume is that because of the large monetary incentive to attack either of these systems, they will be attacked. The larger the money pot, the larger the adversaries. So it is safe to assume that Bitcoin and Ethereum will be attacked at some point. It's a long tail of risk, but one of them will happen. And so it's very hard to judge, at least in my opinion, which long tail risk will materialize on proof of work or on proof of stake. Will it be the miner who discovers how to do the ASIC and then vertically integrates and achieves control of the mempool? Or will it be some staker rising to power and politicizing the Ethereum Beacon chain, the odds are pretty small on both of those, but it's just tough to know. And the only thing we can assume is that something will happen. It's just hard to know which of the tail risks will materialize. Now that's why I look at these issues with three questions in mind. And they're one: how easy is it to attack the network? Two: how large an impact does that have when the attack succeeds? And three. How will the network either defend itself or react, bounce back from a successful attack? And while I think it is harder to successfully attack the Bitcoin proof-of-work chain, just because by now it's years ahead of everything else, it's distributed, the hash power is really decentralized, that's not to say that I don't think something could happen. You know, there are scenarios that I've been able to come up with where a nation-state could pull off some crazy attack in the physical world and then launch a 51% attack on the chain. And if that sounds crazy, yeah, it might sound crazy, but that's the idea with long-tail risks. They all sound crazy, but something here materializes. And so that's not to say that proof-of-work is more at risk than proof-of-stake, but it is to say that they both have long-tail risks and attack vectors. And so the question is, how could they be attacked? I think proof-of-work wins out a little bit versus proof-of-stake, but on the other two questions, for how significantly damaged an attack would be and how the network would bounce back, well, here I think proof-of-stake chains have the upper hand. Because they're political by nature, they have more experience doing this, hard-forking, bouncing back, aligning the community on a new chain. Whereas with a proof-of-work, you're kind of stuck if someone is just spamming your attack for a while and they're spending and double-spending and the only things you have at your disposal are changing the algorithm... Or aligning the community to hard fork, which would then be a political structure that has to come out of nowhere, which in my mind is just really difficult to do. So it really is a question of a spectrum on those three questions when judging security and decentralization. And the jury's out. Both have strengths, both have weaknesses. My last point on weaknesses that I'd add for Bitcoin proof of work is that we don't know what happens to the fee market. It's a large unknown that we're pushing the risk off into the future, and while the block wars is a great story to tell as a proof of the power of individual nodes, I don't think it holds water in the future. The block wars occurred at a time when most Bitcoin users were hardcore Bitcoiners. They were technically savvy, cared a lot about owning their keys and wallets. It wasn't easy to be a Bitcoin owner in 2016-2017 and to know enough to be involved in the Bitcoin wars. So future users won't be that same group of early adopters. In five years, we could easily see ourselves with a majority of users not caring at all and wanting to transact faster, cheaper, or whatever it is. And there would be a significant amount of nodes or users who justify a hard fork and port over enough transaction value, enough activity that miners would then follow suit. It's simply the innovation adoption process. The majority the early majority, the late majority, doesn't care about what the early adopters care about. So I know Bitcoiners love to wave the block debate wars around as proof of power of the community. I really don't think it holds water. In any event, I love Lynn's writing. I love her objectivity. And it's something we need more in our tribal crypto world. Part two will be the rest of the piece and then a brief summary take. See you then. (laughs) we <laughs>